Hey Gateway, happy Sunday to you. You know, as I was preparing for this time, I had this odd thought come to my mind that seemed to map on to the teaching that we're in. And today we are continuing in the gospel according to Mark. We're going to be in chapter 6, the the second half of verse 6 all the way to verse 30. And the thought was this, it was this odd memory of the first time that I had a friend uh, draw out on a whiteboard how I thought. It was a little embarrassing, and I I suppose that's what this moment could be. Uh, He proceeded to draw a rough sketch of a roller coaster. And there was a start and the finish, but the middle, this would be a roller coaster that you would want to hold on to. It was basically uh, the uptick and then a bunch of swirls and an ending. <laughs> you said, Kyle, this is, this is how you think. And I want to show you how I think Jessica, who's my wife, I want to show you how I think she thinks. And he started by writing the letter A and then the letter B and then just drawing a straight line. <laughs> This is how I think most people think, is A to B. But today, the teaching text that we're in, to my joy and possibly to your disdain, it's a bit more of a roller coaster. In this teaching text, we encounter adultery and incest and murder sandwiched between gospel authority and God's deliverance. It's a bit of a wild ride. And yes, this is from the Bible. And in this little section of verses, we encounter what really feels like two separate stories, but in fact is one story. It's one story about our life with Jesus, the disciples' life. And altogether, this one episode, if we're willing to, if we're willing to listen here, this episode can expose our orientation toward authority and our desire for convenience. It can expose our allegiance or our disdain for the way of Jesus. So I've entitled this teaching Severed Heads and the Disciples' Life, partially because I just thought it was an epic title for a sermon, but also because that could be the end of a disciple's life. And we'll see that here, that that is the cost that John the Baptist pays. And so without further to do, that's a lot of hype to get into this, uh, turn with me to the gospel according to Mark, uh, chapter 6, starting in the second part of verse 6. And we're just going to work our way through line by line. Mark 6, verse 6. And he went about... Among the villages teaching. And stop right there. <laughs> we're, we're eight words in and we're already pressing pause. This could be a long one. So right here, this might feel to you as though this belongs to last week's teaching, where Jesus is in his hometown and they kind of, they reject him. We would see in Luke's account that they push him to the edge of the cliff and then he departs to go to other villages. It seems like it would be in last week's teaching, But this is just how Mark's narrative works. This is how he does his storytelling. He ties episodes together with phrases like this. And then in our minds, we're supposed to tie the whole story together because these are little hyperlinks back and forth between his own text and the rest of the Hebrew Bible. And, And just to show you, we actually heard Jesus say these words back 
in Mark chapter one, he said, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And by saying these words in verse six, he went out among the villages teaching. Mark draws us back to that core purpose of Jesus stated in chapter one, namely to proclaim that the good news of God's deliverance is at hand. And all along, we've seen now like the mission of Jesus flow out through Jesus. I mean, it's, it's really what you'd expect, right? You'd expect that God's beloved son would be the one who brings the message of deliverance. But then we're reminded in verse seven here that Jesus's intentions for the gospel are larger than himself. We actually see something shift. So just look down there in chapter six to verse seven. This is what we read. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And what's curious to me right here is how Jesus relates to authority. I mean, he relates to authority in an otherworldly way. And you might have an immediate rebuttal where you say, well, of course, Kyle, this is the God man, Jesus. That's just what he does. But Jesus is truly, he's fully man. He, he is under authority. And yet he has authority and the way he relates to it is different. See, for Jesus, authority is not a manipulative tool used to belittle his followers and keep people in line like many of us have experienced authority. Rather, for Jesus, authority is, it's a tool for liberation in keeping with God's coming kingdom. It's a tool that Jesus wants all of humanity to pick up, like collectively pick up and use in his name, in keeping with his words and ways. We actually see this come out before this moment. We see it in chapter three. And it's actually, these are the words. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. See, Jesus's first stated goal in calling his disciples to himself is this, that they might be with him. And, and if we have no vision of who Jesus is, of how, like how in the world are we going to pick up a tool like authority and then wield it with integrity in Jesus's name? See, I'll, I'll tell you, we won't be able to do it. And like the disciples, if, if our lives lived in the name of Jesus, if they don't extend from the person and presence of Jesus that is with him, then we will inevitably abuse others in Jesus's name. We, we may think that we are doing good, but it's distanced from God. There's this sobering line that Jesus, like, that he just lays on, and it always caught my attention. People come to Jesus and they say, we did mighty works in your name. We, we cast out demons in your name. Jesus will say, I, I never knew you. Flee from me. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness, you evildoers. So somehow, we can think we're going about the way of Jesus, 
but the authority of Jesus, it always extends from the presence of Jesus, which is what makes these next few verses, starting in verse 8, a little bit more interesting. Pick up there with me. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. In other words, just wear one tunic, what's under your clothes. And he said to them, Wherever you, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Notice two things here. First, that line about shaking the dust off their feet. Well, this is a, a cultural practice in, from the day of Jesus where Israelites, they would shake the Gentile or the uh, non-Jewish soil off their feet before they came back into the promised land, a land which to them is holy. It's a way for them to symbolically say with the shaking off of the dust, this is holy, that is the promised land, and everything else is unclean. But to do this to your own people, it would be scandalous. It would be insulting. But it would also get your attention. It would be prophetic, you might say. And I think that's the point. The point is that the disciples have the authority of Jesus. They're embodying it. And in turn, Jesus is entrusting their judgment in those moments. Second, just look now at the disciples. Like I said, they have the full power of Jesus. They have authority to preach unto conversion and the authority to cast out demons. And yet they themselves are utterly dependent upon the provision of others, upon the generosity of strangers. And I know hospitality, like the love of the stranger is markedly different in Jesus's day than our own. There's a, a cultural expectation to receive a traveler. I mean, J- Jess and I had neighbors from Cairo and they were the most hospitable people. They didn't know us. We were strangers, which is what hospitality is. It comes from xenophilia, which is the love of a stranger rather than xenophobia, the, the fear of a stranger. We were strangers to them and they showed us love by receiving us. If we would have stayed in their home and eaten all night, they would have fed us. (laughs) That is just the culture that is saturating this text. So I know there's a difference here. But the overarching call for the disciples is not to trust themselves and what they bring, but rather to entrust themselves into the care of Jesus, whose authority is with them. Just as Jesus himself entrusts himself to the Father. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we'll see that Jesus will say that we can do no thing, nothing apart from him. But he also goes on to say that he does nothing apart from the will of the Father, that everything he does extends from the generous love of the Father. The charge then to take nothing is a charge to trust. This is at the core of the gospel. The charge to the disciples when Jesus sends them out is to embody the way of Jesus, to embody the ethic of the kingdom, to live out the good news of Jesus in the authority of Jesus. And what happens? We'll go down to verse 12. 
So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent and they cast out many demons off to a good start and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So you get to verse 13 and you go, they did it. This is like the first positive report collectively of the disciples. Normally they're confused, they're frustrated, they don't really understand what Jesus is doing, but right here they embody the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God being at hand in Jesus, and they did it. This ragtag group of of fishermen and former terrorists and national traitors, they somehow embody the good news of Jesus. They take the authority of Jesus and it leads to repentance and healing. This was all like the uptick of the roller coaster. This is the moment before the drop off in the loops and the I think I might vomit. We get there now in in verse 14. And this is going to be a larger section of of text that I'm going to read here. I'm going to read all the way through to verse 29. So stay with me. King Herod heard of it, speaking about the disciples and their work. So King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers were at work in him. But others said, well, now nah, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, it's John, whom I beheaded. He's been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Hold on to that. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, He was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Going on, verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Just a little commentary right there ever so briefly. Um, Not like your birthday party, not a pinata. It's uh, basically pomp and circumstance to say how good he is to exalt himself. For when, verse 22, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. That's a sexual innuendo of sorts. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter to give to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. It's like one loop after another. It's, this is like a soap opera, like a soap opera gone bad and then dark and then worse. 
And the question that arises out of all of this is why insert an episode with a sex scandal and murder right into the midst, into the middle of the disciples being sent out? What's Mark thinking? For me, this feels worlds apart from what we see in verses 6 to 13. But for Mark, this is the disciples' life. See, Mark brings John to the fore to help us here right now and those who are reading this in the first century to see that what the end of one's life might look like if they walk it with integrity to the way of Jesus. Herod, Herod's just a figurehead of the way of the world, a way given over to convenience and gluttony and the elevation of self over and against anyone who stands in your way. This is really familiar for us. We, we, might, we might even have people, institutions that come to mind when we think about the way of the world, the elevation of self over and against anyone who stands in our way. See, this Herod, the one that Mark calls King Herod, he's no king at all. That, that's actually political satire. Herod is a governor of Rome. He's a tetrarch. His, his daddy was Herod the Great, the one we know from the Christmas stories who killed all the babies to try and get rid of King Jesus. Yeah, that's his dad. His real name is, is Antipas, but because he wants to be like daddy, he took the name Herod. So Herod Antipas, this gets, this gets crazy. He is a man who divorced his wife, who's the princess of Perea, uh, because he had an affair with his brother Philip's wife when they were on a trip to Rome. Philip's wife, Herodias, she divorces Philip. Basically what happens is uh, Antipas finds himself embroiled in a affair a sex scandal, then multiple border skirmishes, war, all because of the elevation of his desires. He is a man enslaved to desires to, to the point that he even lusts after and finds pleasure in his daughter, who is really his niece. He is no king. And look what this no king fears. Just, just jump back up to Mark 6.20. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. You see, John the Baptist, he spoke truth to power. And we hear that phrase a lot, don't we? Speaking truth to power. But whose truth? Is it your truth? Is it my truth? Is it her truth? John speaks God's truth. And this, this might be offensive to some of you. <laughs> you might even, you were thinking, hey, maybe I'll share this teaching with my cousin or uh, my roommate. And now I just said God's truth. And you're like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to do it now. There is a reckoning here with the words of God and, and how they come to bear on the human experience. What does flourishing look like for us? What does it mean to be truly and fully human? Well, John looks at Jesus and in the wake of Jesus, the one to whom he saw and he said, he must become greater, I must become less. He, he speaks out of that place, the, the truth who is Jesus. And when he does this, where does he find himself? He finds himself imprisoned and beheaded because of the drunken vow of a power-hungry man. Notice this in, in verse 26. The king was exceedingly sorry but because of his oaths 
and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. In other words, the cost of a righteous life is a man's reputation. To save his face, to save his reputation before these high-ranking officials, John's life is the cost. To what extent will you go to save your reputation? Probably pretty far. See, this hurt. This hurt me reading this because I saw myself in this no king. Simply put, image management, it's not the way of Jesus. It is the way of the world, and yet it creeps into the life of the church. How many of you in this past, I don't know, three, five, last year, have put a resume forward? I've done it. We want to look better than we actually are, don't we? The question comes, tell us about your weaknesses. And we make all of our weaknesses look like strength. Because somehow we think we need to perform. See, image management, it's not the way of Jesus. It's the way of self-protection and the way of self-advancement and the way of self-fulfillment. The call of Jesus is a call to be with him, to find ourselves hidden in Jesus for our lives to so merge with Jesus' lives that when people, when the world looks at us, they wonder, who is that? It's a call to be with him so that we might be sent out in his name, with the authority of his name. The call of Jesus is not the call for self-fulfillment. That's a false gospel. And when I read this, it hurt because I was exposed how I have elevated my reputation at the cost of others. It's, it's in little theological skirmishes where you, where you say after a meeting, oh, did you notice how they said that? And you, you tear down the integrity of that person without, with behind their back. And let me tell you something, I'm really good at it. This was exposing for me. This is a moment, not of condemnation, but of conviction. And you see that the gift of a roller coaster like Mark 6 through 30 is that it, it gives us the gift of a new vantage point. It flips us upside down. It helps us to see the ethic of an upside down kingdom. And this bizarre episode, it, it, it takes us into this space to see what is the anti-kingdom. It takes us to see the disciple of the anti-kingdom, to see Herod Antipas himself, who Mark calls King Herod. This whole passage, this, this like middle section that seems disconnected from the, the call and the sending out of the disciples, it's a reckoning of sorts. And it's a gift if we're willing to receive it as such. Because when we get to verse 30, we actually, we see how Mark draws this to a close. We read this. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. See, the language here in my, in my translation is a bit soft. Uh, it's more vibrant. When they came back, it wasn't a telling or a reporting to Jesus. You, you could translate it, the sent ones. The sent ones returned and proclaimed all that they had done and taught. There's no doubt 
that when they went out, there was demons to be cast out and proclamation to be made. And just to be clear, like what I'm doing right now is not proclamation. This is, this is teaching. We're working through a text. We're unpacking it. We're looking at the biblical links. We're seeing how it connects to the Hebrew Bible and points to Jesus. And when we get to Jesus, that is proclamation. That is what the disciples were doing. So for sure, there's, there's things that they're doing, the casting out of demons, the healing of the sick, the proclamation of the kingdom of God. They're doing that. And when we hear about it in verses 6 through 13, we, like, we come to the end, especially 12 to 13, we celebrate with them. It's like they have the authority of Jesus. But right here, the attention is not on Jesus, what Herod hears about. Now it's a proclamation about what they have done. All of a sudden, there's a shift away from Jesus back to their own self. There's a bravado in their words. And, and it's out of touch with the way of Jesus. It's, it's an odd contrasting point to end on. It's like just the weirdest end to this roller coaster ride. But what this brought me to was this sobering reminder that this moment, the moment that we're in, a, a global pandemic, a country rife with just, um, injustice and systemic oppression and racism bubbling beneath the surface and the fear to name that racism, just the whole cocktail of emotions. There's a reminder that this moment is ripe, as is every moment to discern our heart's ambition. That's the invitation here. Are you with Jesus or is Jesus with you for your interest? Let me say that another way. Is Jesus, are you following Jesus for your own self-advancement? Or are you with Jesus to be with him? Waiting, listening, learning so that you might be sent out with the authority of Jesus. You might think that this is the worst moment to be sent out by Jesus. But let me just remind you that the purpose of Jesus was to proclaim that the good news of God was at hand. When he calls us, he actually calls us into that movement. And for Jesus, his heading toward Jerusalem was a heading to his own death, where he would be hung on a Roman execution rack as a criminal. John is a foreshadowing of what integrity to Jesus looks like. This moment is ripe for us to discern our heart's intention. So where are we? Let this text serve as a diagnostic like if some of you are going this week with your groups to talk about this, if you're going right after this teaching to talk about what are my heart's intention, don't shy away from it. Let there be confession. Let there be lament. Let there be sorrow. But also let there be celebration if God is broken in and you know that you're standing in the authority of Jesus. It's not yours. Because let me just say this. Jesus is here to dethrone the no kings of our hearts. That is why he's come, so that he might be king. Herod Antipas had aspirations to be the king of Israel. Herod the Great had aspirations to be the king of Israel. And they killed to secure that, to hold on to that authority. But the authority of Jesus gives itself away in love. The authority of Jesus, the love of Jesus asks, not what can I get, but what can I give? That is what we actually get to carry into this moment is a posture of humility, of listening. 
of asking, what can I give here? To be with Jesus, to become like him, to do what he did, that is the invitation of the apprentice of Jesus. That is the invitation to you and to me. And sometimes the end of a response to that call is a severed head served on a platter to a mother who manipulated her daughter and allowed her to be exposed in an illicit sexual act for her own gain. It's gross and it's nasty and the economy of this world is not concerned with the other. It's concerned with the self. And the beauty of the gospel of Jesus is that we are here to give ourselves away for that self. It's upside down. It's backwards. That is the economy of God that we see fully in the face of Jesus, where he lays aside his life. He empties himself to come and take on our form, to know our struggles, to be with us, he became like one of us. He sympathizes with you. And the invitation is for you and for me to do the same. So will we do it? Like, will we take up the mantle of laying aside our preferences for the good of the other? This season, like no other, gives us the opportunity to do that. In these forthcoming weeks, we're going to be laying out what it looks like for us to gather back together as a community. And for some of you, it's going to be too progressive. And for some of you, it's going to be too conservative. But for all of us, we can ask, what, what is the posture of my heart? Is it one of love? Is it one that desires to be with Jesus so we might be sent out in the authority of his name? I pray that it may be so. So to that end, let us pray. Father, in your world, where Jesus reigns, weakness is strength. And so we name our weaknesses so that your strength may be found in us, so that your power may be brought to completion in and through us. Jesus, help us to lean not on our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge you. From our waking in the morning to our sleeping in the evening, may we acknowledge you at a dog park, at the restaurant, in the line at a grocery store. We, may we acknowledge you in all of our ways and in those places know that we who name the name of Jesus are the sent ones. God, bring us to our knees before you in humility. Let us humble ourselves before you and walk in ways that represent the goodness and the liberty of your kingdom, Jesus. Mm -hmm.